Harvard Divinity School. HDS Reorientation and Common Conversation Closing Session, April 26, 2022. For those of you who are joining us from the outside of our HDS community, my name is Melissa Bartholomew, and I have the privilege of serving as the Associate Dean of Diversity, Inclusion, and Belonging at Harvard Divinity School. It is my honor to welcome you on behalf of our HDS Racial Justice and Healing Committee and our Standing Committee on Diversity and Inclusion. The committees com these committees are comprised of staff, faculty, and students, and they animate this work. Thank you all for joining us for our final reorientation and common conversation session, featuring a conversation regarding our common read text, Red Nation Rising, from border town violence to native liberation. We are privileged to have the four authors of the text with us who will be in conversation with a panel of four members of our HCS community, of faculty, staff, and students. We began our reorientation initiative last year as a series of engagements to help reorient ourselves around our shared HCS values of respect, dignity, mutual understanding, and trust, with a particular focus on dismantling and healing from racism and oppression. We have centered a common read text that we can engage with together as a way to deepen our understanding of the roots of racism and oppression while cultivating deeper connections to each other. This work is also being designed to help us further the vision we have set as a school, which is to build a restorative, anti-racist and anti-oppressive HDS. Our common read book last year, Race and Restorative Justice, Black Lives, Healing and US Social Transformation by Fania Davis, helped us develop our understanding of restorative justice as an approach to advancing equity, diversity, inclusion, and belonging. And we incorporate restorative principles and practices into our programming and work. Through our collective engagement with this year's common read text, Red Nation Rising, we are building on the foundation we laid last year, and we are committed to responding to this book's urgent call to action. Our Racial Justice and Healing Committee has been intentionally discerning what our institutional commitment will be to the work of advancing the cause of Native liberation. And this work will continue beyond this year. Restorative justice is a worldview rooted in indigenous wisdom and ancient circle practices that are part of indigenous cultures in various parts of the world. It is an approach that helps us to expand our consciousness and transform our way of being in the world. It is rooted in relationships, it reminds us of the importance of prioritizing our own humanity and the humanity of each other and to acknowledge our ancestors who came before us. One of the ways we do this is through a grounding practice that we engage in before we start our work and these important conversations. They help to center ourselves and drop into the space together. This sustaining practice helps us to focus on our ongoing work reckoning with this nation's history and engaging in the work of dismantling systems of oppression. So before we begin this important conversation, we will take some time to focus on our breath and ground ourselves. I will guide us through a brief breathing exercise and then my colleague, Steph Gauchel will begin reading a poem to nourish us as we breathe. So I invite you now, wherever you are, to get comfortable, close your eyes if that's comfortable for you, and to breathe. And as we breathe, 
We honor those who have gone before us and paved the way for us. We honor the indigenous people of this land Harvard University is located on, which is the traditional and ancestral land of the Massachusetts, the original inhabitants of what is now known as Boston and Cambridge. We pay respect to the people of the Massachusetts tribe past and present and honor the land itself, which remains sacred to the Massachusetts people. We honor those formerly enslaved African people who were brought to this country to labor and the formerly enslaved indigenous people and all oppressed people who helped to build this country. But for the stolen land and labor, this country would not be. We also hold in our hearts all who have lost their lives to COVID over the world and to those who are suffering and have lost their lives as a result of the war in Ukraine and wars and conflicts throughout the globe and to violence, ongoing violence stemming from racism and oppression. To be here together breathing is a gift. As you continue to breathe, and feel your heart expanding wider with each breath. Draw your attention to your opened heart and allow yourself to drop into your open heart space. And as you continue focusing on your breath, I invite you to listen to this poem that Steph will read. Being with my Delaware grandfather by Denise Lowe, a native poet and professor of English. Walking home, I feel a presence following and realize he is always there. That native man with coal black hair who is my grandfather. My first memories, he is present, mostly wordless, resident in the house where I was born. My mother shows him the cleft in my chin identical to his. I'm swaddled and blinking in the kitchen light. So we are introduced, we never part. Sometimes I forget he lodges in my house still, the bone house where my heart beats. I carry his mother's framework, a sturdy structure. I learn his birthright. I hear his mother's teaching through what my mother said of her. She kept a pot of stew on the stove all day for anyone to eat. She never went to church, but said you could be a good person anyway. She fed hobos during the thirties, her back porch a regular stopover. Every person has rights, no matter what color. Be respectful. This son of hers, my grandfather, still walks the streets with me. Some twist of blood and heat still spark across the time bridge. Here, listen, air draws through these lungs made from his. His blood still pulses through this hand. If your eyes are closed, I invite you to gently open them. I invite you to turn your focus back to your breath and to check in to see how you're feeling. Part of our grounding practices is to also check in with one another. So as we re-enter the room, we invite you to check in in the chat with a word or two about how you are feeling. And as we check in, I invite Dean David Hempton to offer us some reflections. Welcome everyone, thanks for joining us. This reorientation journey that we've been on since last year is an intentional and important one. We have committed to a collective engagement with a text, a hard but clear and concise text, with the hope and expectation that it will help move us further along the path 
of dismantling racism and oppression personally and collectively as a community. This read is in furtherance of advancing our school's vision of a restorative anti-racist and anti-oppressive Harvard Divinity School. By reading last year's text, Race and Restorative Justice, Black Lives, Healing and US Social Transformation by Fania Davis, and now this year's Red Nation Rising, we're affirming our commitment to doing the hard work of reckoning that must come with the process of healing, restoration and repair. Red Nation Rising, From Border Town Violence to Native Liberation is a book that doesn't hold back. It invites us to confront the hard truths of this nation's history of oppression against Native people and the pressing reality of the work of liberation that requires the dismantling of the structures that maintain the settler state of oppression in so many forms. As students and scholars of religion, it's our job to reckon with the role of religion in the history of oppression in this country and to identify our place in this work of Native liberation. At our last community conversation about this book in February, Jason Pakenau of the Harvard University Native American Program reminded us that we must deepen our understanding of Harvard's own history in order to be clear about our own work. As Pakenau highlighted, Harvard raised money from England to Christianize Native people to help establish this institution and use Native people as free labor to build the original buildings on our campus. This is a time when Harvard is taking clear steps to face the ugly parts of its history. The report from the Presidential Initiative on, on Harvard and the Legacy of Slavery has just been released, and that's a major step forward. It highlights the terrible history of Harvard's legacy of enslavement of Africans and Native people. So through our work at HDS with this book and through our ongoing commitment to advancing our vision of a restorative anti-racist and anti-oppressive HDS, we are facing the hard truths of this country's history. And we're trying to dismantle the systems of oppression within ourselves and in our own institution. This means our work will continue beyond our engagement with this text. We each enter this journey from different positions and perspectives. And for some of us, this is a history and current reality that we've always known. For others, this is a new and counter to histories that have tried to silence the impact of settler colonialism. Books like Red Nation Rising provide rich ground for us to meet and engage in this hard, urgent work together. We're very fortunate to have the authors with us to be in conversation with our community. We look forward to the wisdom and insights that they will share to help us on our journey. Thank you all so much for this book, for being with us here today. And many thanks to all of you who have joined us for this very important conversation. I'll turn it back over now to Melissa to introduce the authors and our HDS panelists. Much looking forward to the conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dean Hampton. Now on to our conversation. We have eight panelists. So unfortunately, we won't be able to share full bios, but we encourage you to learn more about each of them and their work. First, our authors, we welcome Nick Estes, who will begin as an assistant professor of American studies at the University of Minnesota in the fall. Nick's advocacy and research focus on indigenous resistance 
Anti-Colonialism, Abolition, Decolonization, and Anti-Capitalism. Melanie Yazi is an Assistant Professor of American Indian Studies at the University of Minnesota starting in the fall. And Melanie specializes in Navajo American Indian history, political ecology, indigenous feminism, and queer indigenous studies. Jennifer Nez Dittentail is a professor of American studies at the University of New Mexico, who teaches courses in critical indigenous studies, indigenous gender and sexuality, and Navajo studies. And David Correa is a professor of American studies at the University of New Mexico. David's work focuses on the state's police powers, law and its relation to violence and environmental politics. And our HDS panelists, Steph Gauchel is Assistant Dean for Student Affairs at HDS. Steph provides support, counseling and referral to students. And Teddy Hickman Maynard is Associate Dean for Ministry Studies at HDS and oversees the Master of Divinity program. Teddy has more than 20 years of ministry experience. Rebecca Mendoza-Nuziato is a, an MDiv candidate studying Mesoamerican ritual and indigenous kinship. She will be participating alongside members of the HCS chapter of HUNAP, the Harvard University Native American program. And Emma Thomas, who is an MDiv candidate and is an educator and facilitator with deep commitments to transformative justice, reparations and social movements for healing and justice. I now invite all of the authors to turn on their cameras, and I will turn things over to Steph, who will lead our opening conversation with the authors. Steph. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you, everyone. It's now my honor to open up space for the authors to share your opening reflections with us. Um, from our pre-meeting conversations, we know there is much to share about your work together, how this book came to be, who it's for, and how it is connected to the work of Native liberation and structural change. We invite you to reflect on any of this or anything else you'd like to, to share. I'll turn it over to you all. Hamantakyapi, uh, uh, my name is Nick Estes, and I'm just gonna, we're just gonna introduce ourselves and then speak briefly about um, certain sections of this particular book and why we wrote it. And so I'll just begin by talking, um, giving a brief overview of uh, border town violence as we have come to understand it historically. So I'm going to start by reading a quote. In 1980, when the U.S. Supreme Court verified what the Lakota people had been saying for more than a century, that the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty was violated, many non-Indian people of South Dakota became afraid of losing their homes, businesses, and livelihoods. Are they remembering the fashion in which many of their ancestors forced the loss of the homes and livelihoods of Lakota people and think the same will happen to them? Or are they afraid that the federal government will turn on them also as it has turned on Lakota people? And the reason this is a quote from the kind of renowned uh, Lakota intellectual and environmentalist, uh, Charmaine Whiteface, who also is the spokeswoman for the Black Hills Nation Treaty Council um, and she gave this testimony at a U.S. Commission on Civil Rights um, in Rapid City, South Dakota, on or in December of 1999, after the bodies of, of several lifeless uh, Lakota and uh, white men were found in, in the river there, um, identified as you know houseless people, people who were living on the streets. Uh, and this was one of um, I think this was like the third uh, civil rights hearing that was held in the city itself. And I think what Charmaine Whiteface actually points out is the kind of uh, modus operandi of white supremacy 
this fear of counter-annihilation, the logic of settlement and uh, the elimination of indigenous peoples on the continent um, operated from the very get-go. It's even codified within the Declaration of Independence saying, you know, the merciless Indian savages on our, on our frontier um, is essentially about destroying indigenous nations before they destroy us or before they prevent, you know, the real nation, the United States um, from taking place. Um, and this kind of logic also operates in the sense of making invasion look like self-defense. And that's really at the heart of what we're talking about in terms of the long history of border town violence. Um, and I think uh, just based on some of the conversations we've had with the Harvard Divinity School um, faculty and some of you know, the, the people who've read this book, uh, it's, it's kind of, it can be jarring, you know, much as it, it might be jarring uh, in walking into the middle of a movie, you know, halfway through and not having seen the first part of the movie and then trying to make guesses about it because each one of us um, have written extensively or have participated extensively within um, or on border town violence and thinking about remediating, you know, those kinds of, uh, those kind of issues within a, the context of social movements. And so that book is really, or this book is really um, a condensed version of, of those kinds of thoughts. And if we go back in history, if we look at this particular statement by Charmaine Whiteface, um, and we look at the history of things such as the Red Power Movement, the Red Power Movement arose in the 1960s, almost in response to border town violence, the very conditions that we're talking about in this book. Um, the, you know, the Gallup ceremonial in, in the 1960s was being protested by uh, the National Indian Youth Council, um, Clyde Warrior, uh, was one of the first people to coin the term red power in conversation with and in collaboration with somebody like uh, Stokely Carmichael or Kwame Ture. Um, and these weren't seen as you know mutually exclusive movements they were seen as you know a very complementary and in fact many of the uh, the Stokely Carmichael and the Black Panthers actually showed up in response um, in 1972 when the American Indian Movement and other red power activists took over the Bureau of Indian Affairs um, and what they were responding to was the conditions of, you know, the border town economy, the way that indigenous people um, are exploited within these uh, white dominated settlements that ring Indian reservations. Uh, and we've documented this through the series, the multiple series of uh, civil rights commission hearings that were held uh, in the 70s, all the way, you know, into the, the late um, uh, 20 aughts. Um, so these, this is a well-documented history. Um, there's, it's a very common vernacular amongst uh, indigenous, the indigenous community or, or Indian country, the term border town. Um, and so we weren't really doing anything new so much as we were just showing um, this kind of long, longer tradition. And it's not just, you know, unique to uh, the United States, um, you know, where we had places like Gallup, Rapid City, uh, Albuquerque. There's even places here in, in Minnesota. Um, that are considered white dominated border towns that have the same kind of um, um, features uh, that, we, that we are kind of addressing in this book. Uh, but it also happens in Canada as well. Um, and that's, you know, the Red Power Movement in Canada was actually in response to uh, the conditions of incarceration and, and police violence against Indigenous people in a place like Kenora, where they make up about half the population, but today, are over 95% of the jail population. So these are the kind of dynamics that we are working to uh, sort of undo and thinking about this idea of the counter annihilation thesis and the way that white supremacy is fundamentally um, 
grounded in a in a fear of being replaced you know whether it's the great replacement or just the idea of land back in the in the question that uh charmaine whiteface poses so um i'll turn it over to uh, jennifer uh dennett dale um who is also a mentor of mine and also a uh uh you know the the chair of the navajo nation human rights commission okay good morning they have been um say jennifer dennett dale and she and I'm very pleased um, to be a part of this discussion this morning. And I, I um, say good morning to all of you. And it's good to see my, my colleagues. We're all in different places. Uh, David Cree and I are in, in Albuquerque. Um, in regards to the, the questions that was asked as the first part of this, our, our reflection, I think a lot about, I looked at this book again this morning, um, I think it was almost about two years in the making of working together in collaboration on this book. And I think about the what Nick provided in terms of an origins um, of the concepts and, and the work that went into this book and that in a lot of ways, it's our common experiences, our observations uh, to bring together what many indigenous people know of what it's life like on, in colonial United States. Um, and that it's not um, something that's isolated and happened in the, in the late 19th century, for example, but it's an everyday experience for indigenous people in this country. And so I think that's one of the important things about this book is to continue the work to extend just how unjust um, this country is to its indigenous people. Good morning. Um, wanted to um, respond very specifically to the question that we were asked to, in, in introducing ourselves, um, and talk very specifically about our use of the term "border town" and and um, and the difficulty I think maybe some non-native people have with the term or, or the history that we lay out. Um, and and to be clear, we never actually set out specifically to write a book about border towns when we began the Border Town Violence Working Group. We set out first to understand settler colonial violence. There's no lack of work on settler colonialism as an ongoing process, as a structure, rather than a historical event. But we didn't think there was enough work on, on how settler colonialism reproduces and renews its violence. How does settler colonialism and all its violence and misery and suffering flourish in a society that claims to be committed to social justice. Uh, we, we understand that some members of your community have struggled with this text. Some have told us that the history we chronicle in this book is new to them, that they weren't familiar with this history. Uh, we're not surprised by that. I can't tell you how many politically progressive media outlets have rejected or dismissed our work as marginal or unimportant to their readership. Uh, it's not hyperbole to say that an indifference to violence against Native people bridges nearly every political divide in the US. Liberals and progressives might claim to care more than conservatives, but there's no evidence of it. It's an active indifference that often takes the form of defensiveness as if we're the problem in pointing all of this out or Native people are the problem for just existing. We might wanna consider the implication of this indifference to historical and ongoing genocide. And, and when we do it, when we consider it, we ought not look inside ourselves for an answer. 
Rather, we need to look outside of ourselves, literally at the world that surrounds us, a world that exists as a spatial expression of settler violence. We repeat that idea throughout the introduction. Border towns are spatial expressions of settler colonial violence. Border towns are spatial expressions of the violence and exploitation that define everyday native life. We don't mean it as a metaphor. It's not hyperbole. We didn't conjure the idea out of thin air. It may be provocative, but it's a conclusion based on our scholarly research, our political organizing, and, the, and most importantly, the lived experience of native people in this and other settler societies. The physical worlds we inhabit are not innocent stages upon which our lives play out. They are carefully constructed machines designed to sustain a settler world. This is why we wrote in the introduction that there is no objectively innocent spatial form that we might just refer to as a town. All settlers live in border towns. Some are just more obvious than others. Melanie. Uh, good morning, everyone. I'm Melanie Yazi. Um, just introducing myself to Navajo relatives who might be in the in the audience. Uh, I appreciate what my three colleagues, colleagues and comrades actually have said. Um, we're all comrades because we have done the organizing work in addition to the intellectual work. And in fact, the book comes from, um, and the Border Town Violence Working Group several years ago uh, came out of the, the work you know, on the ground, the work out on the streets um, with our relatives in these spaces. And so the book, the language of the book um, reflects the space from which the project emerged. Um, it didn't necessarily emerge right from within a classroom or within the walls of the academy. Um, it emerged from working with uh, relatives who live on the streets in border towns, particularly border towns of the Southwest, as well as places like Rapid City. You know, it emerged from this long tradition and this history that Nick addressed of, um, you know, powerful indigenous freedom fighters and revolutionaries uh, without whom we would not be here. Like indigenous people simply wouldn't be here um, given the, the extent of genocide, right? Given the extent of the erasure. And so um, the tone of the book and the directness and I think what some are framing as a call to action, um, it's not really a call to action, it's just about action, right? Because when you're out working with uh, your people out on the streets, especially our people who are the most vulnerable and the most targeted by, by this, the, the system of settler colonialism, right? This violence that, that David was addressing in his comments a few minutes ago, um, then there is, no, there is no room for mincing words, right? There's no room for wiggling out of the reality. And so when you choose language to speak about that reality, um, it has to come from that place. It has to come from a place of deep honesty um, that reflects the, the conditions of our people. And, you know, the, the border town, you know, as David was saying, it's not a metaphor for settler colonialism, but it is a microcosm, I think, of settler colonialism. If you think about um, the way that we, we define the border town in the book, it's, it's a laboratory, you know, for how settler colonial violence reproduces itself. And therefore it is not a coincidence that 
some of the most powerful um, uprisings as well as movements for indigenous liberation of the last century have happened in response to border town violence and have emerged from the space of the border town. Um, Red Power being, I, I would say the most notable. And you know, in my background, I have the Red Nation, but the Red Nation certainly emerged um, out of the work we all did as a border town violence working group. Um, they kind of emerged together at the same moment in history about eight years ago. Um, but that, you know, the resistance is very powerful because the violence is so powerful in these spaces. And that the violence that occurs in the border town is in fact the violence that is everywhere. It's the violence that is required, right? In order for the project of settler colonialism to keep being something um, that, that exists. And, and of course, uh, the United States could not exist without uh, this remarkable violence um, that, it, that it enacts against all racialized populations, including indigenous people. And so I encourage people, you know, to, to read the book as a way to understand how settler colonialism works in real time, um, to sit with the tone of the book and to understand that it comes from a place of just deep commitment to the struggles of our people, that the book belongs now in a long tradition of indigenous liberation, a long tradition of political writing um, that comes from an, an indigenous radical tradition actually that emerges from you know, resistance against uh, genocide, essentially, right? Resistance against the settler colonial violence. And that everywhere settler order meets indigenous order is a border town. That's, the def that's one of the defining features of settler colonialism. And so the, when settler order, which requires the elimination of indigenous people, the indigenous nations, indigenous orders, you know, the violence has to be quite extreme and remarkable actually in order to suppress indigenous presence, let alone indigenous resistance. And this is why you see the repression and the suppression so extreme. Um, this is why you see a crackdown on water protectors at Standing Rock in 2016. Um, and this is why you see the pantheon of, uh, of technologies of violence that are operating on any given day, which I think we try to describe you know, in the book, um, operating in the border town, it really is a world saturated by violence and that this is the reality of what native people, particularly working class and, and poor native people have to navigate every single day in the United States, but also in Canada. And so, however, you know, as David said, and as my colleague said, this isn't so much about our personal feelings. It's not about feeling guilty, right? About that order. It's about being honest about that reality that native people experience and then figuring out, you know, how are you going to join in the struggle for indigenous liberation? Um, that's really what the book is about. It comes out of that space. And if any, if it's a call to action, then it's just, you know, it's just a call that comes from these long traditions of indigenous resistance to annihilation, essentially. And that the war, you know, the war that settler colonialism, the United States has declared on indigenous life and presence and futurity is an ongoing war and it is a war. If you felt coming out of this book that we were talking about an ongoing war, it's because we are, right? The border town is a war zone. Anywhere the settler order confronts indigenous order is a war zone. And so how are we as indigenous people, you know, able to survive and able to fight in a way that, that secures a future? It's not just for us, right? I think I hear Nick say this a lot, you know, indigenous liberation isn't just for indigenous people, it's for everyone. It's indigenous liberation is for the future of life on this planet, right? And so 
thinking about this book in the context of climate change and how indigenous people, particularly indigenous women and water protectors and land defenders are really trying to secure a future for all life on this planet, right? And so this war that settler colonialism and capitalism has declared upon indigenous people, like it, it behooves everybody to, to be, to support and to, to fight alongside indigenous people, you know, who are pushing back and resisting. And that resistance is not, it doesn't come from a place of violence, right? That resistance comes from a place of deep love um, for the earth. And it comes from a place of, you know, the authority, the moral and the political authority and the knowledge that we have the first relationship with this land. And that's, that's our strength. And so this is partly what we were trying to convey in the book. Um, I really look forward to the questions from the HDS panelists. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop here and we can transition into the next section. Well, thank you all so much. I'm just so grateful for this text and the clarity and clearness that you bring uh, in it, the truth telling you offer. And I'm grateful for your comments today and helping us ground further in the context of this being an ongoing history that this isn't new. Uh, I appreciate hearing about some of your work together as colleagues and comrades. Um, and just the reality that settler colonial violence isn't a metaphor, that it's a lived reality. And, and I really appreciate the ways you show the ubiquitous impact on Native lives and uh, why this is so important to address this war for Native and non-Native folks alike. So it's now my honor to uh, invite our panelists to turn on your cameras as well. And we'll move into the question and uh, conversation part of our event. Um, you know, we're going to continue to build on the themes and lessons learned throughout this year and in our engagement with our common read, Red Nation Rising. We continue to return to the four points Dr. Phil Deloria gave us during our October opening session regarding Native peoples and Native liberation. One, we are still here. Two, we're not like the other kids, i.e. we have a political relationship with U.S. government. Three, we want our stuff back. And four, we have things to say. We have about an hour now for us to be in conversation with one another. And while each of us, uh, each of us HDS panelists will have an opportunity to ask a question of our authors, we return to these four points and to center native voices. And for this conversation in particular, the voices of our native students. So it's my pleasure to invite Rebecca Mendoza Nunziato to begin our conversation. Rebecca is joined today with a few HDS student colleagues who are also a part of the newly formed HDS HUNAP student group. And for those who might not know, HUNAP is the Harvard University Native American program. Rebecca, I invite you to introduce yourself in any way you wish and to begin our conversation. Uh, and thank you so much to these incredible authors for your book. My name is Rebecca Mendoza Nunziato. Um, and I also would like to introduce my friend Sienna here. You can introduce yourself. Hey, my name is Sienna Monet. And Quinn is also on Zoom. Quinn, do you wanna introduce yourself? Hi everybody, my name is Quinn. Uh, we're so glad to be with all of you. Um, we are each students here at Harvard Divinity School and looking to create a new chapter of HUNAP. Um, so we wanna thank Jason Pacano and other students and friends for joining us in that journey. Um, and before we begin, we also wanna name that in this context, we can't escape the fact that we participate as tokenized and individualized bodies. And we aim to reject that by being here together. And we wanna call attention to the stark and severe lack of native and indigenous representation here at HDS. 
At many events we witness and hear land acknowledgements and rarely do we acknowledge the 700,000 ancestral individual um, or human remains and the over 1.2 million ancestral belongings or objects in the Peabody Museum nearby. Uh, we rarely acknowledge, let alone pursue accountability for daily epistemicide and racism and ongoing land grabs, the financial foundations of this place, the wealth from our, these indigenous lands and the better concealed Harvard and Massachusetts state history. The three of us are each part of communities that the settler state, as you all have named, is continually trying to kill, displace and erase and often with success. So when we read this book, we resonate. The particularities of our own places and people mean that we see ourselves in this book and we are inspired by your work, the urgency, analytics, and storytelling. Thank you so much for writing this book. Institutions like this displace us from our relations as part of a structure of settler colonialism. We wanna talk with you about survivance, solidarity, resistance, and liberation, especially given the context of an Ivy League elite colonial neoliberal place and we want to bring sharp focus onto Harvard Divinity School, a space of religious studies that cultivates and credentialize hundreds of scholars and practitioners every year. So with that, I will pass it to Quinn to ask our first question. Thank you, Rebecca. I'm very grateful to be here. Um, my question stems from the fact that in the Border Town Manifesto, you write that uh, settler colonialism is the disease, uh, abolition and decolonization are the cure. Um, along with the nation state and the police state and the border town, uh, in what ways are, is the university fundamentally opposed to native survival? What are the values learned, practiced, and perfected in higher education? You, like us, are located in the university setting, though clearly your work goes well beyond the walls of the academy. Um, as graduate students, what, what role uh, can we play in this call for abolition and uh, decolonization? And what advice might you have for us? This is Jennifer. I don't know if we decided on, on um, an order of answering questions, but I do want to point go back to what Melanie provided in her talk. Um, she she mentioned the place that we come from, um, the moral authority, the political authority, um, and invites the audience um, to participate and to think about what we're bringing forth um, in this book. And so I don't know if Melanie wants to elaborate or go back to those points. I thought they were really, really good. Okay, first of all, I wanna say, I really, um, I appreciate that we opened up this chunk of the, the event with native students. And it's my passion. It's why I'm in American Indian studies and why I was in NAS at UNM. Um, I mean, I have my degree in American studies, but but honestly, it really is just a passion of mine to work with Native students, people like Jennifer, who is a fierce mentor. Um, I would never have been able to get my degree without her um, as a fierce Indigenous woman and a Diné woman at that and a historian. And so I just have a really deep commitment um, to working with and engaging with Native students. So this said, uh, so you're question has lots of parts. <laughs> I might need you to repeat part of it, but the parts that I remember I'll, I'll give us I'll give a crack at starting this and I um, if my colleagues want to riff off of the answer that'd be great. Um, you know, I think that uh, there is a common kind of refrain or kind of a common sense within social movements in the United States, um, particularly ones that are considered more lefty or radical, that any association with the academy automatically uh, equates to being a sellout right and so that, that you can't actually do any kind of genuine um, work towards liberation if you're situated in the academy, if you have a degree. Um, and I understand that critique. I think it's a pretty well-trodden <laughs> critique. 
Um, but something that is important to remember is that first of all, right, we started this, all four of us, so Jennifer and David were both faculty members in the Department of American Studies and Nick and I were PhD students at the time that we began the work, um, whether it was the work on the book, the Board of Town Violence Working Group, or at the time that we started the Red Nation. And it's the thing about the, the university, I'm not gonna talk about the academy. I, I think the academy and the university are two separate places. I'm gonna talk about the university you know, historically, the work on border town violence has really centered on and the protagonists of that work have been students, student movements. And if you look at the history of social movements in the United States, student movements have always been incredibly influential in the most important social movements in the history of the US, particularly of the 20th century. And so the border town violence work coming out of a university space, we in fact collaborate, Nick and I were students, first of all, at the time that we started the Red Nation and started this work, but we worked very closely with Kiva Club, which historically, you know, it was actually one of the most important organizations that emerged during the Red Power era at the same time as the National Indian Youth Council, um, at the same time as like uh, the Coalition for Navajo Liberation. And, and so thinking about the university as a space in which organizing and that the battle over ideas, the war of ideas, and it is a place of a site of struggle I think is a really important shift in how we understand our role within these institutions. And, and so that being the case, like students, students are the protagonists of liberation historically, first of all. And so thinking of yourself in that way, um, I think is really important. I think, you know, this may not help to answer the question related to the book specifically, but we're seeing, you know, there's an assault on critical race theory. We're seeing really a right-wing assault, a fascist assault, on ideas. There is a war, a true war of ideas happening in the political spectrum, both in the United States and internationally right now. Faculty members are getting fired. I was writing this, I was writing my pages of this book when there were literally, there was a white supremacist militia that tried to come to my office on campus in Native American studies at UNM the summer of 2020 when I was writing the bulk of my contributions to this work. And right, the, the, the function of that is to silence, it's to silence I mean, I think I heard someone, I heard, I think um, you said this, Rebecca, the truth telling, right, is to silence the truth really about the history of the US. And so if we reshift our understanding that the university, yes, the academy is like a petty bourgeois profession um, that you know helps to kind of like normalize occupation. Of course it does that. And there's incredibly power, there's incredible power and wealth that circulates through these institutions. Like Harvard owns the world. I mean, I got one of my graduate degrees from Yale. Like I know these institutions literally own the world. You know, they own the patrimony of our people. Like you were saying, Rebecca, the body parts of our people, which you all need to return, by the way. <laughs> Just want to make a plug. But at the same time, we are people who come from certain places. We come from origin stories ourselves and we circulate in and out of these institutions. And to understand the institution as a battleground, as a site for political struggle, instead of acquiescing, right, to, to, I think this view that somehow, well, we're in this institution and so we can't do anything about it because we're already compromised. You know, I, we're in a moment where indigenous people are building power. We're building power quite rapidly, actually, especially in the United States and seeing ourselves as coming from a position of power rather than, I, I don't know, a position of tokenization, right? The institution, the institution will always treat you that way. The institution will always be a settler institution but how you see the institution and you engage that as a site of struggle, that's your choice as an indigenous person, as a young black student, for example, right? 
And so just encouraging students to shift their relationship with the institution and that the it's not about changing the institution. You're not going to change Harvard. <laughs> that's just not going to happen. You're not, and that's a that's a like a, that's a losing game. Don't try to do that. Engage what, with your time there. Engage that institution as a site of struggle to advance the actual struggle for liberation. Har I don't know if Harvard will ever be accountable. Like the, that's that's a losing project. Even UNM will never be accountable. But you can use your time there to use it as a site of struggle. And forming HUNAP in the Divinity School was an important step, I would say, in that direction. Yeah, just to, to build off what Melanie says, because I think what she says is incredibly important. But, um, you know, when I was at the University of New Mexico, um, I don't even think we have a landing or we had a land acknowledgement there, uh, partially because we were just there was just so many native faculty and we would have, you know, would, you could go into a faculty meeting and it would just be native people. And that's that was pretty rare. But also, um, I was just thinking about what's the what's the purpose of uh, a land acknowledgement when the university actively uh, makes weapons of mass destruction, you know, nuclear weapons. Like the University of New Mexico has a partnership with a lot of uh, nuclear weapons facilities, and it's like, what's the point? It's like I, I just saw the other day um, uh, doing some research on Washington uh, State and their penitentiary system. They've undergone a quote unquote, you know, decolonization process as well. Where they have a land acknowledgement, Washington State Penitentiary has a land acknowledgement on their page. <laughs> you know, so it's like there's we're we're seeing the limitations of like representational and kind of liberal politics that these yeah we can gesture to say hey why don't we just you know say nicer things um, while we colonize you know um, I think there's there's the limitations of that you know but I also think as a grad student, um, somebody like I, I, I say this, but I say it with like a real meaning and I've been reflecting on it a lot. Um, I worked in food service longer than I've been in the academy. <laughs> I have like almost a decade of food service and like my bosses were racist. They were sexist. They would say awful things. I wish I had a union so that we could, you know, <laughs> like fight back against the bosses. And so when I came to the grad, grad school, I was really confused about um, why people were asking, you know, uh, grad students were asking the university to change. I was like, they're the bosses. Like, why don't we just organize a, like a, a union to fight to fight back? But instead, you know, we're crying on the shoulder of the person who injured us. Like, what? What? That doesn't make any sense to me. You know, um, as an organizer, as somebody who's been involved in in these movements, like, why cry on the shoulder of the of the man who stole your land? As um, you know, Art Manuel said, you know, he was a famous uh, Sequemic uh, uh, indigenous uh, activist um, from, you know, uh, from so-called Canada. But I think that we have to think about that. It's like, are we trying to change, you know, are we trying to seek redress from the very people who are causing that harm? And I think what Melanie says is also important. It's like, I don't think Harvard can ever be decolonized unless it's made a public good, you know, unless you're going to put you know, Harvard into the service, uh, take Harvard out of the private hands of the ruling class and put it into, you know, the, the service of, of, you know, just everyday people who pay taxes, because all these people don't pay taxes. That's why, they, that's why they create foundations like Harvard. Um, then you're not really getting anywhere. But I think you can use the, the skills and uh, the things that you learn at these institutions to actually help build real power. You know, there is real power being built. And uh, there is a role for intellectuals to play 
Um, but I think there, there, is a, there is a level of, I would say, betrayal to one's class position within the academy that you have to take. And I'm speaking to students here, you know, like uh, as somebody who's gone through this process, you know, I went to college to be an anti-war organizer. I didn't really go to college to actually, I didn't know what I was doing at the time. And I just happened to stay with after all my friends had dropped out. Uh, and here I am, you know, um, and I've been to Harvard and I, I know how alienating it is uh, for, especially for indigenous uh, students to be there where Harvard can claim this abolitionist legacy while just being a very like, you know, colonial force and completely erasing any kind of indigenous presence within Cambridge itself. Um, so I do understand that, but it's also, um, I think that there are, you have access to, to resources that um, other folks don't. And um, I would just say, you know, learn how to read, learn how to write, learn how to speak well, and, you know, uh, use it, put those, those skills in service of, of actual movements that, you know, that we need. And I think it's also important to point out the, the, the reality we're facing as Indigenous people, as American Indians in the United States. Uh, you know, there was a, a report that just came out a couple of weeks ago about how um, enrollment for American Indian students at higher, uh, higher education has dropped, you know, precipitously over a decade, you know, um, to numbers that we haven't seen since the early 2000s. Because college is not, A, a viable, like, you know, economic opportunity for us because it's unaffordable, student loans, et cetera. Uh, and, you know, colleges or universities like Harvard handpick, you know, just several students. And that's not impactful. You know, that's not uh, equitable education, right? And so I think um, we're, we're facing this, this reality and it's like these institutions are failing us. And it's like, if these are broken institutions that do this amount of violence, like what's the point of fixing them? You know, um, these are larger social questions that we have to address. Uh, I do think that Harvard and other universities are in a position to give things back, but they can't pat themselves on the back for doing it. <laughs> um, first of all, I think uh, there, yeah, there's, there's a larger question, but I really appreciate that, that question. Yes, Yanni, you want to take the next question? So thank you both, um, really all of you so much for your just fantastic lucid responses to all of this. Um, I wanted to ask a question that really ties into a lot of what was sort of previously discussed. And now I think half the notes are relevant because you answered <laughs> a, lot, a lot more than we thought. Um, but I really want to ask you all a question about futurity and strategy. So it's sort of a two-part question. Um, first, I'd love to know what you think of... Um, I'd love to ask you more about the kinds of future that you imagine, which you describe in the chapter, Burn the Village. So what do you mean by native liberation? Um, we have a secondary part about if Harvard Divinity School disappears in that future, I think we can say for sure that's a yes. Um, and then the second part of this question is, you all have a lot of experience with building coalitions, working under duress, um, connecting diverse and disparate communities. What are strategies for an indigenous future, especially in places like the university, where we need to build community, harness resistance, and practice solidarity across diverse groups? Can you repeat the last question? Yeah, <laughs> Sorry. So what are your what are your strategies for um, community building um, and harnessing resistance to practice solidarity across diverse groups? I think a lot of the struggle with HUNAP here is we're just completely atomized um, and people have such different um, such different backstories and such different identities that it often can feel really, really difficult to get anything done because there's just 
like almost no native presence here. Um, so I'm just wondering what what insights you all might have in that regard. Yeah, that's it's a difficult question um, because it's I think it's all very unique to and specific to Harvard itself. Uh, having gone having done a fellowship there um, in uh, the Charles Warren Center, um, you know, working with uh, Walter Johnson. Um, it was a really, you know, amazing experience, but also it was, it was very like, it was a really, it was a really rude wake up call just being like somebody asking me, Hey, so what are you, what are you writing on right now? And I was like boarding schools. And they were like, Oh, I, I went to one of those. And I was like, yeah, wow. <laughs> we're like from different planets. Like this is like, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to go for four years or even graduate school. Um, so I think uh, like the, the question of like building across differences is really important, but I also think that thinking less about um, Harvard, the, lo the location and you know, the very insular community that it has, because there is a very powerful uh, indigenous alliance in Massachusetts. I mean, there, there was the Indigenous Peoples Day Coalition that formed, um, that was headed up by the United Native Americans of New England. Um, which you should all check out and you should all support. Um, they have the National Day of Mourning every year uh, during so-called Thanksgiving. Um, and I think that history, you know, shows that there, there are things like in, like, because I think what happens, you know, and I noticed this um, going to Harvard, but then also being here at the University of, of Minnesota is that these larger schools, whether they're large in terms of financial resources and prestige or large in terms of just like the sheer number of students that they bring in, Kind of become their own little communities um and they're very transient in terms of like people are coming in and out and there isn't a whole lot of reinvestment into the struggles that already exist or the movements that already exist and so i think that's you know that's the first thing that you know i did when i moved to the university of new mexico um you know jennifer like we just got in a car and we drove to gallup we started talking to people we started organizing and um, we, we wrote a series of uh, essays on um, border town violence that actually won an award, um, you know, a journalism award. Um, so I think just kind of like thinking beyond just the university as like a self-contained, you know, geographic and political space um, is, is important. And it also helps you, you know, cause it's like, you're not just trying to climb the rungs of the university, um, but you have like, you know, legitimacy and grounding within an actual community of people who live there for, for a long time. And so it's, how are you responsible uh, to those caretakers of the land versus you know, you know, just investing in one's, you know, advancement um, within within a university. Um, I really appreciate you all helping us think beyond beyond the limitations of um, the context that can be so, I think, all consuming. <laughs> so thank you for that. And the next question um, does kind of take us a little further uh, into larger questions. And I want to look at the chapter called Settler Scams and specifically how religion fits into that. Um, so you rightfully scrutinize philanthropy, nonprofits, charity, and discourses around human rights and what is sacred. And you articulate the ways that language of reconciliation and peace are often employed in the neoliberal paradigm to neutralize native demands for decolonization. So though there are certainly secular versions of those examples throughout the book, we really saw how, how religion drives settler violence. And at the divinity school, we need to pay attention to a history of the doctrine of discovery, Christianity's role in dispossession and genocide on these lands through missionization, boarding and residential schools. And then of course, the present and ongoing violence of social services, nonprofits, churches, 
and the other religious and charitable organizations that many of us have been or will be involved in, in some sort of vocational volunteer tourist or professional capacity. So with that being said, how would you help us think about um, particularly the appropriation of native and indigenous spiritual practices, materials and ceremonies, and how these spiritualities conceal violence? Uh, and then can you describe what that means in terms of the stakes of native liberation? This is Jennifer. I think I'm gonna start, go ahead and start. Um, and I, I, um, I think about some of the work that we do, um, we've done with each other. We, we keep in conversation with each other about the work that we do. And Melanie mentioned the day she was working on uh, revising or looking at the introduction for this book. And there was outside um, white, white and Hispanic supremacist militia looking for her, like actively looking for her and fully armed. Um, and they, they doxed, um, Melanie and Nick, they put their address online. Um, they made, they called for their militia to um, meet in front of their house. I was livid that an indigenous woman speaking, speaking out can garner so much violence directed at her. I was in tears about that. So what I did in response was to call for indigenous women to sit in front of her house as the first line of protection. I, I put it online on social media. A friend of mine, white friend, offered to cook. She said, I can't come out, but I'll bring you food. So she made a wonderful meal for, for us who were sitting. And we're just sitting outside. We're we're defenseless. I mean, we're we're not armed. You know, and so I think in terms of your question, one of the points that's been really important in the work that we've done that I've uh, really taken inspiration from, from this group is that our line of defense is our relationships to each other, our kinship. Um, I, it's very, very hard, quite honestly and frankly, um, in a place where I live to look away from Christianity, to declare that you're not a Christian in any form because we've been so indoctrinated with Christianity. In the border town of Gallup, you leave the Gallup going towards my community of Tohatchee, which is about 25, 20, 25 miles from Gallup. It's the closest border town to where my, uh, my community. In that 20 miles, I count at least 16 Christian churches. 16, and the population is so sparse. Okay. And so I think one of the first things that I've actually learned from um, the Red, Red Nation, but I knew this, um, is that who we are in relation to each other is really, really important, that we extend and we practice kinship, and that human beings are very minor in the larger order of the world. And that kinship to all beings, um, and as um, Nick and Melly have written about, particularly with that um, collection on Standing Rock, that this is the foundation um, for the res for resistance. You know, and so I think that's a really important um, point. We're just working all the time <laughs> um, to hold up our own ways of understanding as Indigenous people. And one of the things that I learned in this last couple of years. I'm not a fluent 
um, speaker of, of my language because my mom and dad went to boarding school and my father didn't think that he wanted us um, to, to speak language, even though I heard the language every single day from them, they were fluent speakers, you know? Um, and so I have privy to the language um, of the incredible prayers and ceremonies um, that there's no words for it in English. There's no, there's no translation. And I don't even care to translate it. It's, not, it's nobody's business um, except ours of just how incredible the prayers and the thoughts that come from creation are. And that's what I hold up, you know? And so I think it's important to think about um, how our relations are really important as, as one of, as just foundational um, to all people. Uh, is it okay if I speak a bit to this? Um, thank you, Jennifer, for saying that. Also, thank you for this question. Um, I'm gonna kind of shift a little bit and talk about, um, you had asked kind of like, what's what's at stake when it comes to Native liberation with the question of not just the church, but spiritual religion. I'm actually gonna talk about religion. I'm not really gonna talk about spirituality. Um, you know, the I was reading an article, I think it was in the Guardian, oh shoot, it was in a, a prominent kind of global news source recently about the rise of Pentecostalism um, in the global South, particularly in places like India and the alignment of um, religion with kind of the reemergence of like a very reactionary, very right wing kind of a political force, let's say behind Modi, for example, in a place like India and that you know, I've heard Vijay Prashad talk about this too in his work because he does a lot of work on, on the political uh, climate in India and that the, the way in which religion is put into the service of like incredibly violent projects, um, especially reactionary projects, you know, it that often happens in a vacuum. There's a vacuum of like, let's say it often happens when the state has completely failed to support people through what we often think of like welfare, like welfare type things like education or healthcare or housing or food or jobs. And so religion often enters the picture to like fill that void. Um, it provides community. The church provides community for people. The church provides hope, right? The church actually provides real goods and services for people. In fact, like much many of these churches in a place like the Navajo Nation or rural parts of India, for example, they're providing like hygiene, like clean bathrooms, for example, they're providing clean drinking water and food. And we also see this in border towns where um, charity, right, the church has really entered in where there, it's really the border town is a state of like total abandonment. So indigenous, as you know, what David was saying, like there's just like a concerted indifference towards indigenous people and indigenous suffering that's kind of like a defining feature of settler colonialism. In the border town, there's absolutely a willful indifference to indigenous suffering, especially folks who live on the streets. And when in the absence, in the absence of a robust, strong movement, right? A movement that has political, um, a political agenda attached to it, religion will enter that space and fill that void because they provide actual goods. They provide actual community. And by the church, I mean the type of church that is predatory. I'm talking about a predatory type of Christianity and the primary type of Christianity that, I mean, preys upon native people comes from this predatory place. And it is very much attached to the conservative, the political conservatism that pervades many of our communities, the ranks of our councils within our nations, you know, the, the president 
of the Navajo Nation is a highly conservative Christian, for example. These are people who like invite Trump to indigenous land, right? Much at the, the chagrin of the people themselves. They don't represent the people, right? And so I think trying to understand that if we don't want predatory religion to come in and to take up this space of service to our people, we actually need to be building movements and we need to be, you asked a question about the future and what native liberation means and what does the future look like? The future is really us being able to take care of the needs of everyone. There is, There are no rich people and there are no poor people. There's just people who are thriving, <laughs> period. And like, this is what our societies looked like before the advent of colonialism and capitalism. And so the future is simply a future of real equality where everyone's needs are met, where everyone has a home, where we're not, you know, the greatest shame that we could have upon ourselves as indigenous people is when a relative was hungry or when a relative was in an abusive relationship and nobody was doing anything about it, right? Where a relative didn't have a home and wasn't taken care of. And so our movements need to be based on this, right? And the future that we're envisioning and that we're actively building as we're building the, the struggle for liberation is just the future of that. It's actually quite simple. <laughs> it's actually very simple. It's very indigenous, I would say. Um, and there is a role for spirituality in, obviously there's a central role for spirituality in this work. I mean, if we're, we wouldn't be indigenous unless that was something that was the case for us. Um, but there is no role for like predation any longer, right? There's no role for the predatory kind of church and kind of religious institutions um, that actually cause great chaos and division within our communities. Um, and that do fill the void because we don't have people-driven movements that are able to actively provide that alternative. And obviously we don't have a state that can provide that alternative. The state doesn't care about native people. And oftentimes the, our indigenous nations don't do what they need to be doing for our people either, right? They actually create greater zones of abandonment and even more harm. And so it really, at this point, I, I think, and the part of where this book came out of is us, the Red Nation literally formed to try to fill that void, to try to be a people-driven movement that showed people the alternative, that actually feeds the people, right? That provides the goods, the social good, as Ruthie Gilmore Wilson calls it, that social and that public good that everyone deserves. And that if we are able to do that through our movements, then that is the future that we're trying to build. And the, the type of predation that happens with these other entities, the kind of charity work that preys upon our people, that the power of those institutions will significantly diminish because they will no longer be needed actually. Um, and so this is just something that I wanted to say reflecting on kind of the question of religion and, and, and the work itself. This is Jennifer again. Uh, uh, building on that, I think that um, I just looked at the book, I have it right next to me, but on page 110, we have the definition of tradition also. And so we're also very careful and we're also very cautious about essentialisms. Um, and this includes, um, this idea about um, concept of tradition as well, you know, to be careful to interrogate it and not to um, create boundaries or, or agree to the boundaries around the word tradition because then it leaves out a lot of indigenous people and especially our young people and our LGBTQ two-spirit people as well. And so we're very careful. We've thought about these terms and we've thought about how in our own work um, that we've, we've uh, created um, critique as well. And so um, for all of us, indigenous feminisms and gender studies, um, queer studies has been also really important um, in the way that it has informed this work.
If I can um, bring us to the second part of the question, and I think this this thread of how all of you have mentioned that it's easy to assume that the kind of right-wing conservative version is maybe the predatory. And then there's also this progressive kind of liberal, um, and sometimes those types of predation don't get named and noticed in the same ways and often get celebrated. And so I'm curious if any of you would like to share anything around kind of some of these, um, I think, sometimes subtle, sometimes really not subtle ways of appropriating indigenous knowledge and spirituality, um, particularly as folks are trying to ask hard questions of institutions of religion and maybe are then um, practicing forms of extraction of, um, yeah, native and indigenous ways of relating. Thanks for keeping us on, on topic. Yeah. <laughs> I a question. You want to answer yeah, I can try to answer it. I mean, <clears throat> so I think what you're talking about is like new age spirituality. And um, I think what, um, you know, we just we just did a podcast episode on God is Red by Bindaloria Jr. And there's like a, there's a lot of like amazing, it's a really great book. Um, if you haven't read it, you don't have to read it. You can just listen to our podcast. I'm just kidding. But, <laughs> um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about that question and like how, um, you know, he, he really points out sort of the cult, he, he's looking more at like the cultural and social implications of religion. And he's like asking a larger question is like, is there such thing as a native religion? And I think what tends to happen is that there there's, you know, in, in the United States, there's an, like, oh, you know, I just saw on Twitter the other day, somebody was like, hey, does anybody have any like, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, topics they want to discuss in terms of like a left progressive Christianity uh, uh, versus like, you know, uh, a conservative Christianity, or even those of miscellaneous religions. And I guess we're miscellaneous, you know, um, but I think there's this tendency to say that like all things are equal and one can be converted to, to another. And I think what Brian Deloria points out in that, in that book, is like, um, actually like a lot of native nations, conversion wasn't a, an aspect. It never was like, we didn't have, a, you know, a lot of people didn't have original sin. Uh, well, there was no concept of sin. You know, there was all these kinds of things. And also this idea of conversion and sectarianism um, was actually anathema. And in fact, one of, uh, he documents this conversation between uh, these, um, you know, native spiritual leaders who were conversing with a, Pente a Pentecostal priest who essentially says, you know, like, this is the truth. There's one God. This is the Bible. This is what the Bible says. And then they tell them the view of like, oh, well, we emerged from this place and this is our origin story. We don't claim it to be universal, but this is our truth. And then Pentecostal priests got really pissed off and was like, you know, this is the absolute truth. And they were like, they were like, you're being uncivilized and irrational because we told you, we, we said that there's a world in which many truths can exist, you know? And I think there's a tendency to think like, oh, well, maybe the, the real truth is like, is native culture or, or native spirituality, or there's just something like, oh, like it's, you know, I, I treat religion like buying laundry detergent. So like, I'm going to go with Tide this time, you know, Tide, you know, smells really good. But I think that kind of consumerism and commodification is an attempt to really, you know, disaggregate where like native spiritual practices come from, which is the land itself. And, I, you know, I disagree with a lot of people on this question. It's like, because people want to self-indigenize. Um, and it's like, you don't need, and I think like, my, my point on this is like, okay, there's the most effective social movements of our generation is the era of the water protector, 
course, Native people have been protecting water since time immemorial. Nobody's questioning that. But 2016 inaugurated a shift in our thinking. And there is a universal identity that people can adopt, which is the water protector, which is grounded in indigenous values. But it means that we, we act in unison to defend the earth and to, and to stop fossil fuel you know, projects. Anyone who walked through the doors of you know, the Line 3 camps or you know, the doors of the, the gates of the Chete Shakoin camp in Standing Rock became water protectors by default. Like nobody, it, was, it wasn't just an indigenous identity. It was grounded in indigenous values, but that didn't make them indigenous people, right? And maybe, yeah, maybe some of them participated in some of the ceremonies. But it wasn't a conversion, right? It wasn't like this idea that you could just self-indigenize. But what's effective about that is that, like, you're not you're not trying to like go back and like you know uh, you know fill in whatever you know vacuous hole in your soul you know that you have or whatever some alienation. Um, it's it's you're you're acting in unison with a larger political project and a social movement that has been incredibly effective to the point that a quarter of carbon emissions in Canada and the United States have been challenged by indigenous led movements. What other movement can say that? That's the power of indigenous spirituality, you know, and you don't have to self-indigenize. <laughs> like, you don't like that's that's a ridiculous question, but water protector is a political identity that one can assume on behalf of, you know, in defense of mother earth, right? And so I think that's that's where I, I like to lead. It's like burning sage does nothing, you know, um, you know, having feathers or trinkets does nothing. It's insulting, you know, and it erases the real relationships that we have. Sure. But at the end of the day, it's like our, our ceremonies and our connection to the land. It's like, yeah, we're close to nature, but not in the way you think, you know, we didn't have a bifurcation, you know, in our thinking, there's no word for nature in, in Lakota. I don't know if there's a word for nature in other indigenous languages, um, but we don't have a bifurcation in thinking like that humans are somehow separate from um, but you know that I can see where that can lead into this like new age whatever spirituality. But for me, it's like if if that political identity or that that grounding isn't grounded in an anti-capitalist and anti-colonial and political project, then of course it can be appropriated and expropriated and commodified. You know that's the point. Like capitalism turns everything into commodity. You know, like commodity culture. So um, I, that would be my response to that. And I, it's not to to like I think. You know, there, I think what, going back to what Melanie said, it's like poor people turn to religion, you know, for a variety of reasons, because you can't just have this kind of like, you know, vulgar kind of materialist idea that, oh, once we just give housing to everybody, like everything's going to be fine. If you look at, you know, Bolivia and Viver Bien, that idea is like not just about the dignity of people with housing, food and water and employment and healthcare. It's also about dignity in the terms of the psychological aspect of like, yeah, we're grounding this, this worldview in an indigenous, you know, an indigenous cosmovision, Pachamama, right? And that it, it's the well, it's the well-being of everyone, right? Not just indigenous people, but it isn't it is grounded in indigenous values. So it shows how there's an attempt to, you know, that kind of tricky dialectic between universalism and particularism. There are indigenous universals that are beneficial to everyone, but that doesn't mean that like our spirituality is like our lands. It's not just up for grabs for white, you know, for white people to appropriate or other people to appropriate. Can I um can I add something to that? Um, I, I wanted to just note that you in your question you you also made reference to the doctrine of discovery. Um, 
you know, I, I think if, if, if you haven't read the Supreme Court uh, rulings on, on the Marshall, in the Marshall Trilogy, uh, it's worth doing. Because if there's any, if there's any U.S. religion, it's property. And property was constructed through the doctrine of discovery. We write about that in this book. Um, you know, there's, when we, your question was about religion, and I think the doctrine of discovery often, often um, is presented or, or, or contextualized in that, in that way. And that's right to do. I think you're absolutely right to do that. Um, and let's also then place it in this other context, which is about property. The, the, uh, if, if there is one shared commitment in this, in this country, it is one to private property that comes out of indigenous genocide and the conquering of uh, native nations in this country. Uh, that's a shared one. You know, I, I think that as Nick and Melanie were saying, um, yeah, I think Pentecostal religion, particularly among poor people, fills a void. Um, and then property, and then the rich people have their new age spirituality that comes from the, the, the failures of all of their proper private property to actually fill anything meaningful in their lives. Um, and, you know, the Doctrine of Discovery is, uh, you, you should read it. I, I think everyone should read the Doctrine of Discovery. Marshall's language is so clear that these are conquered people that have no claim to the land. And we are the conquerors. And it is our land to do as we please. And um, that's the organizing logic of, of everything that followed. Thank you all. Uh, I am now going to pass it over to Emma. And uh, yeah, thank you from Sienna, Quinn, and I. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. What a powerful, powerful discussion. I'm just so grateful for this book and this testimony that you all are offering. It's what we need at this place, and it's, it's what we all need to hear. So thank you so much. I'm here um, as a student, as a white student and descendant of settlers that holds this powerful core at the book, which I think is that native liberation is at the core of collective liberation. There's no collective liberation without native liberation. There's no climate justice without native liberation. I really appreciate that this book is radical in the sense that it gets to the root of these systems that we need to overthrow. And I learned so much from you through this book and in our conversation a couple of weeks ago about your systemic framework and this need to move into sort of systemic abolition and systems change. I wanted to read um, a passage from page 125 that really spoke to me and that we also worked in our discussion groups around the book. You say, in a world structured by the elimination of native peoples, peace, which is the ideal outcome of all forms of justice, can only be achieved through collective struggle to abolish settler colonialism and hold its most pernicious agents responsible. And so my question really comes from there, knowing that collectively we need all hands on deck for this work of dismantling settler colonialism that is poisonous to life. Um, and I know that each of you is engaged in really deep systemic work inside this book and also outside of this book. I'm thinking of your work with the um, Navajo Human Rights Commission, Jennifer, and the work on the Red Deal that you all are doing. And I wondered if you could speak more to the systemic work that you're um, up to and, and the ways that that is showing up in your lives um, to shift these systems that so badly need dismantling. Okay, I'll, I'll go ahead and speak. Um, you know, in terms of the work that we do, this, this when we started this book out, uh, we 
went to Flagstaff, which is like four hours from Albuquerque, going west. Um, and we rented a, a house, an Airbnb, and just spent a week working on on this book. And it was really it was a really wonderful time just to spend with my my comrades, my colleagues of, of writing of working on this book. Um, and I think it took it maybe took us two years. Um, to, to finally pull it together because we've got so many other things that we're working on. But I think um, at and in this time right now, um, David and I are, are still in Albuquerque University of New Mexico. Nick and Melanie will be in Minneapolis. Um, the Red Nation has an office here, the Larry Casus uh, Freedom Center. And yesterday, David launched his um, his book talk, launched his book on Larry Casus, who was killed by um, police gallop and New Mexico State Police on March 1st, 1973. And it was, it's a really important book and it's an important book, especially to native indigenous people, you know? And it was a day when Casus's uh, siblings um, came, three of them came to sit with David to talk about the book. And it was a very emotional um, time. And the, the family, the youngest, his name is Joseph Casus, ended um, both his, him and his sister, um, Ursula ended by saying, you know, my brother was, our brother was a warrior, our brother was a hero. He, he, he sacrificed himself because being an Indian in this country is intolerable. It was intolerable, it's still intolerable. And we continue to do the work um, that we do. And so that's something, that event, uh, David's book on Larry Casus, um, we'll be doing some more work. Uh, Melanie's gonna be coming into Albuquerque on Friday. I'm very pleased about that, can't wait to see her. Um, and so we'd be talking about, we're going into Gallup. <laughs> um, when we go into Gallup, um, somehow the police are circling the building. That's what happened once when we went there to talk about um, Know Your Rights. We had a Know Your Rights camp, um, workshop in Gallup. And we're just, we're just telling people about their rights when it comes to, to the police. So that event's coming on. Um, I told you that I've been working on something. And actually, I, I mean to send Melissa um, the report that I did on, um, we did the Human Rights Commission. I did the research and did the fair amount of the writing, a report on Navajo funerary studies, you know, it's Navajo funerary studies, because these border towns are incredibly predatory. Um, funerals in Western and Christian traditions um, are very profit-making business, you know, and most of them, um, there might be one, um, funeral home on the Navajo Nation. All of them are, are in border towns, you know. And so we've started working, I'm working with a traditional practitioner in the Human Rights Commission to, to, to open space, make way for Diné to start thinking about returning to our own concepts and thoughts and practice regarding how do we take care of bodies when our loved one has left that body and how do we return the body to the earth? you know, um, in a, in a um, sustainable uh, way, you know. And so I think um, we do different kinds of things. We do different kinds of, of work together. And these are just practices of every single day. Yesterday, I heard one of our honors um, thesis students um, talk, her paper was about food insecurity for university students. And I'm really thinking about her paper now, you know. Um, and what does, what does that mean? Do I just listen and go, that was a really interesting paper, good job, and leave it there. You know, um, my, my sense is that I probably won't just leave it there. 
Um, I can speak quickly. I know, and I'm not sure if we're on time. <laughs> uh, you know, I, the passage you read um, from that page in the book and just your question in general, you know, the question of justice, like uh, I think as Melissa was reading the description of the event um, and kind of like the shift that the divinity school is going through um, using terms like restorative justice or restoration, reparation, um, transformative justice, right? The key, the, the word that's the hinge of all of that is justice. And what is, what is justice? What does justice look like? And I'm not just saying, what does justice look like? Like Waziatewi, who's a really important, um, someone who came up, I think, into the field of, of indigenous history, but then also um, kind of like the, the wave of indigenous feminists that Jennifer also belongs to that have taught us a lot over the last 20 years. You know, she, she, she poses this question, what does justice look like? And, and so I think the question of justice is really important to everything that we're talking about. And the something that David said in his opening comments, but something that I think I hope comes through in the book is that justice, um, I think justice in the, in the kind of the liberal, the neoliberal kind of turn inward towards like self-care and questions of the self, like what, how do I engage in restorative justice and transformative justice within like the internal landscape of who I am as a, a bounded individual, um, which is a very liberal thing. We're actually asking people to like refuse that impulse and to actually turn outward. And that that term collective, right? that the, the pursuit of justice and what that justice looks like has, you know, that has everything to do with this future that we're imagining and trying to build of, of real equality, right? Where everyone's needs are met. This just, this world of freedom, true freedom and liberation. And that we can't actually understand what justice looks like unless we're engaged in struggle together in like political struggle for liberation together. And it's through the actual, as Jennifer said, right? That, um, what did you say, Jennifer? It was really beautiful that our first, our best line of defense is our relationships. That that justice is forged through the relationships we have together in struggle. I'm not really talking about other kinds of relationships. I'm not talking about like work colleagues. I'm not talking about romantic relationships. I'm not talking about like friending somebody on social media. I'm talking about the kind of relationships that only happen when you are struggling with somebody else for liberation. And that requires participation in movements, right? It requires like going to Standing Rock. It requires becoming you know, going into that space and struggling with people and that you don't have to become indigenous, right? This cultural appropriation thing, you don't have to become indigenous in order to inhabit that subjectivity of somebody who is pursuing justice with others in a collective struggle. The water protector isn't just indigenous, but through the process of struggling with others, you reclaim your humanity, right? This concept of healing, you reclaim your humanity for struggling with others for the health and the future of mother earth. And we actually say this in the red deal. And so even I'm very critical of healing. I'm very critical of the neoliberal framings of justice and healing um, because I think that they, right, they become reactionary and they become something that actually confuses and, and will divide movements actually. There's a lot of peace policing, right? Who's the good Indian and who's the bad Indian? The bad Indian is the violent Indian. The good Indian is like the peace loving Indian. And so it's not so much that we're not agents and warriors of peace, right? And what we're doing, but that there needs to be much more clarity around how we, how we pursue that justice together collectively, not through cultural appropriation and not through these weird liberal moves to like heal ourselves and like we burn sage to heal ourselves, but instead we actually turn to each other 
but not in like a kumbaya kind of moment. It's like a, we actually need to build real movements or we're going to die kind of situation, which is what we're confronting on a planetary level and as a species. And through that act of like embracing each other and those relationships and those relationships of revolution, like that, that right there, that's where the justice is formed. And that is where the healing happens, frankly. And it, it again, it doesn't have to do with your internal landscape. It actually has to do with like, how are you in service to the future? And like, that's the question that drives indigenous women. It's a question that drives indigenous feminism. That's why we're leading all of the movements at the moment. And that's really what drives indigenous people. Like, how are you an agent of the future? And I think having that question in your mind, I think helps to think about how, how it is that we act um, in relationship to each other, but how we act in relationship to the earth. Thank you so much to both of you for that powerful, powerful word. I really, yeah, I'm moved by it. And I'm gonna pass to Dean Teddy now so that we can keep um, moving along and make some space for questions eventually. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. I have a very quick ask of, of all of you. Um, circling back around to Quinn's first question about um, how, do you, how do you reconcile a commitment to the building of communities of liberation and justice while also occupying these institutions and spaces that are anything but. Um, I loved Melanie and Nick, how you all talked about the agency involved in reorienting your relationship to those institutions. And Melanie, you talked about saying that what you're doing in that moment is you're building power that can then resource um, a politics of resistance and the building of the liberated community rather than thinking about um, how the institution that you might occupy is, is consuming you in that, in that way. But a lot of our students are not going into the academy. Um, they're, they're passing through the academy. They're not pursuing uh, you know, careers in, 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 uh, in, in academia or, or writing. They're going off to you know, work in government or in nonprofit work or community agencies or um, the medical field or medical ethics or arts, um, journalism, they're going off to do any number of things. And I think one of the things that I've noticed with students is they, they want to make that connection between how do I use you know, who I am and my gifts and my calling that may lead me to occupy spaces right within these institutions and systems, but in service of the justice movements that I care about. And I just wonder if you could take a few moments to bear witness to some of your colleagues and comrades that you've encountered in your work, or also even some of your students who have come through your classrooms and are now out in the world doing a variety of work who are doing that move that you describe, but from other contexts besides the academy. Because we have a lot of students who are trying to imagine that for themselves, and it might help just to hear you know, one or two uh, examples of, of the kind of leveraging of power that is happening through other kinds of, of work. I can, I can speak to that just a little, like real briefly. Um, so I had the opportunity to uh, re-engage one of my students um, uh, from the Navajo Nation. She's been a really uh, like a powerhouse in terms of uh, leading anti-fracking efforts, um, not necessarily engaged in a nonprofit or anything like that, but just really grounded in her own community and doing uh, things such as like mycelium reclamation work in terms of using uh, mushrooms and, and fungi 
to uh, remediate the land that has been so drastically polluted by the oil and gas industry. And this is like a grassroots effort. And they're like thinking of, you know, you know, it's, it's a small scale thing and they understand the kind of larger context of it, but she's also <clears throat> traveling to Cuba this week, week to meet with revolutionary leaders of Cuba to really think about a holistic view of health and what it means. Like, why is it that this, one of the most heavily sanctioned countries in the world uh, has one of the most equitable health programs in the world, you know? And what can you know a, a, a nation, a native nation like the Navajo Nation, learn from a country like Cuba, where you even have the, the current president of the Navajo Nation, uh, Jonathan Nez, who's actually praised Cuba's medical program because it's it's similar to the situation is similar to native nations. We are like deprived of all the kind of necessities um, to, to to develop according to our own principles and our own values. Um, especially when it comes to uh, the, the question of health. And so that to me is like an amazing thing. She's going to meet the president of a sovereign nation. You know, it's a nation to nation experience, right? And it's completely provincializing the, U the United States empire. Like the view that she has is not to go to Europe to ask for forgiveness from Europeans at Glasgow or COP26 or to get Europeans to be like, you know, Native Lives Matter or whatever it is. Um, but it's to say, like, this country has done something. They've produced three vaccines you know, for COVID-19, given all the circumstances, and they have something to offer the world, and not only the world, but indigenous nations as an alternative vision. And so for me, that was really compelling to see, like, um, her trajectory and development. Um, and that's just one student. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I appreciate your question because it's getting me to think about like what we've done in the Red Nation because um, the Red Nation always had a strong relationship with Kiva Club, which is the native student organization at the University of New Mexico, because we were born in Albuquerque. And so there have always been students involved actually in the Red Nation and um, many of them have graduated and and some of them are doing pursuing PhDs. Nick and I are like on committees for some of them and those types of things. And so they're pursuing a formal academic career, but many of them I, I think that the experience with doing like political work while they were a student helped them to think about how can they apply, right, all of these skills in, in service to the movement, in service to liberation, just freedom, right, and the end of oppression um, for, for our people, but for all people. And so I'm just thinking about one of our Red Nation folks, he got his, his, his degree, his undergraduate degree at UNM. He now works at like this large native nonprofit and he works on the land back team. And he actually learned how to do writing in the Red Nation, but he's an engineer by training, actually. And so he's become like this resident expert in those things within the organization that he's currently in. But he only got one of those skills from his degree. He got the other skill from his movement work, right? Um, and like the skills that he was expected basically to build um, being in the Red Nation. And he was also the president of Kiva Club at a certain point, the Native Student Organization. And so he's about 10 years out from that. And he's like, how did I, how did I get into this life? But at the same time, you know, sometimes he questions it, but at the same time, he's like, he was brought into this organization. It's Indian Collective. It's one of the largest native organizations currently operating in the United States. He now is somebody who like they look to, even people who are much more experienced, I would say, and older than him in terms of organizing because the, the fact that he was able to do these different things at the same time 
um, has, has given him like a skill set, And I think it actually like an understanding, like his development around the question of liberation is really much more advanced actually, because, because of the work that he did in all of these different spaces when he was a student. Um, and he'll never go into the academy. He's never gonna be like a professor, but he's somebody who other people older than him look to because they're like, wow, you actually have a combination of things that are really essential for the work that we're trying to do. And in a way, I feel like the Red Nation has been, I, I don't know, like a space where, especially people who are like students, where students can come and learn a different set of skills and actually go back into the institution even while they're earning their degree and have like a different orientation to it and a different approach um, that then actually I think makes them like, I mean, this is gonna sound like a little cheese ball, but like kind of like more powerful warriors out in the community, to be honest, if they, which, which I don't know would necessarily happen if they were just like, it like involved in the insular community of the university as students. And so there's, I think a profound like relationship between the shifting in spaces that we've been able to provide for a cohort of young, young native people primarily um, who were students at the time that we started doing the work. So I feel like that's just like one example in my mind. Um, yeah, I would, um, I'm thinking of, of a graduate student we had um, recently. Um, I, I should say, by the way, um, you know, I, I, I think I agree with one of the first questions was really about, you know, the university's role in, in you know, settler colonial violence. And, and it is certainly a, a settler colonial structure. Um, and, but I, I wouldn't be anywhere else but the University of New Mexico. There's, there's no university. I, I, would, I wouldn't be a professor if I wasn't at the university. I would be doing something else. And the only reason why I say that is because we get these really remarkable Native students in our program, particularly American Studies. You know, Melanie, as she said, came to us from Yale. Um, Melanie's exceptional, but she's part of this exceptional group of students. We get students coming to us, coming home, really, um, from places like Stanford or Brown or Yale. And um, I'm... I was thinking, and, and I, I, the reason why I'm still at the University of New Mexico is, and, and in American studies is because of students like them who come and uh, have no interest necessarily in, in higher education, don't want to be professors, don't, don't want to be scholars, but recognize specifically there's something to learn from, from the faculty and graduate students that they can then work with. And so our, my, I see my job is making sure I'm participating in producing that kind of community that's fully in service to the kind of work they want to do. So I'm, I'm thinking of a, a student who, who got a master's degree with us and she, her father was a Pueblo leader who passed away while she was finishing her master's degree. And she was a social worker um, on the Pueblo and, and um, did her research on the sort of political realities around being a social worker, dealing with the, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, dealing with Pueblo leadership, um, and it, it transformed the way she thought about herself uh, and her work and how she wanted to do her work um, and to see the way she grappled with it and, and how she relied on a, sort of the community of Native students and activists and organizers in and connected to the American Studies Department mattered an awfully lot, I think, to her. And, um, and so I think that, you know, my answer to your question, Teddy, is also an answer to the first questions we had from students, which is, um, we're not going to, you're not going to transform Harvard, um, but it's through groups like Heva Club, 
departments like ours, American Studies at, at New Mexico, that, that students can find a particular kind of home to do the kind of work they want, and that 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 the university then be, you know can be actually in service to real radical transformative struggle, and um, it's it's it always feels so tenuous. Uh, it always it's impossible to sustain. It feels like it feels so difficult. It feels like a miracle every time it, a, a student shares that 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 sort of that kind of story. Um, and uh, so, I, and I'm just uh, always struggling against the university. I'm a former chair, Jennifer, I'm the current chair of the department, and um, it's you know we we are uh, a department that is is confrontational with the university, um, and and not not um, in any sort of like um, I, I mean I think confrontational in the sense that look look at what we do, look at the students we, we that that come to us. Um, how 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 can this not be the model for the university? How is not how is every department not like this organized like this in service to students like this? Um, it's rare. I'm really I'm an, I'm honored to be a part of it, and um, and it's but it requires really just forgetting about any of our sort of like scholarly goals or or, or expectations for students, and rather figuring out. Uh, what can they teach us about what we need to do to serve serve those students? I'm going to go ahead and and add to that. Um, I don't know how I became a professor. Um, two stories of two students, and I don't know if I'm going to make Nick blush here, but I remember um, the first day, the first day that Nick actually came into my office. This tall um, Lakota man. Um, with a ponytail comes and sits down and his knees are sticking out from the chair he sits down and talks to me we sit and talk and then he smiles at me gives me a big giant grin and says it's really good to be in a place where there are indians you know and then later on as we i got to know him better through the work that we were doing together he told me that when he was looking for a graduate program he was looking for a a, a university that had an indigenous feminist on its faculty. And that's how he found me and that's how he decided to come to UNM. Um, well, this week, last week, I read a um, student's honor, senior honors thesis. She comes to my office to so we can discuss her thesis. And she says, I have a gift for you. And she gives me mountain tobacco. Uh, she's Dene. Um, and for Dene, one of the signs of respect of um, of giving of gift giving um, is mountain tobacco, you know. So I just never know what one day from the other of what's going to happen or who's going to who's how am I going to have some really wonderful transforming generative moments like those two moments um, last week. David and I are going to be on his on a book talk um, Thursday morning on KUNM and um, the interviewer the brought the radio talk person called me and he was asking me questions to prep because one question he asked me was how do you think border towns have changed since Larry Casus was killed and I said what kind of a question is that I said I'm not interested in gauging progress or modernity or if the settlers feel better I said I, that's not even a question I said so he said okay let's talk well I'll, I'll call you and we'll come up with some better questions you know so one of the questions he asked me was what did I think of, of um, 
critical race theory and, and all these efforts of states to ban critical race theory. And I'm just not worried about it. I said, I didn't, I was, I'm a historian by, by training a self-loathing historian, by the way. Um, history departments are hard spaces for indigenous historians. Um, and that's true for every single place that I've ever been to. So um, critical race theory, um, I don't expect people to give me knowledge. Um, I haven't been given knowledge. Um, Native studies in universities, Chicano studies, Black studies, we didn't ask nicely. Our, 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 the people who came before us and opened these spaces, they didn't knock politely on the door, okay? They knocked the damn doors down, okay? And so what's become, what their visions have been in many places have turned into neoliberal visions um, of acceptance within that structure, even though, you know, we continually work against and resist those structures of um, liberal acceptance. And so I've always been hand, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a reader. My dad, for some reason, really believed in education. And so I always, I'm very, uh, I'm, it's not usual in the Navajo Nation. It's a, uh, among the deserts that it is, it's a book desert, okay. But somehow I grew up among books. And so when someone hands me in um, graduate school, Howard Zinn's History of the People of the United States, that was a transforming book for me. The Dakota historian Waziwatawan's work was transforming for me. History departments do not assign Waziwatawan's histories. Okay, um, and so you know we we're in control of of um, our education. We're in control of our knowledge, um, and so we're always. I, I've always had to seek out knowledge, and it's always been community based um, knowledge. That's where. I begin the, the, the critical work of interrogating and disrupting. Um, and so I think it's important that we just remember that we have to take control. We have to seek out these places that, that are aware of the structures that we live in of these injustices. So that's all I wanna say. Uh, thank you all so much. That was so rich. And I know uh, others will be as inspired by it as, as, as I was. Steph? Thank you, Dean Teddy. Um, I'm really so grateful for this conversation. Uh, and I had a question, but in the interest of time, I want to send it back to Melissa so we have time to see if there's any audience questions. Thank you, Steph. And thank you, everyone. This has been so powerful. We, in our remaining minutes, we want to open it up. So if anyone in the audience has a question, please put your question in the Q&A um, and we'll We'll draw from, from there. While we wait, can I just mention something? Um, sure. I'm just observing the wisdom and the knowledge and the skill that the four of you have cultivated in even um, helping us ask better questions. <laughs> and I think that's so much of what is, what is um, in the foundational challenges of of being in these spaces is that we don't even know what questions to ask. And that is where I think community and connection to folks like you and the work that you did in this book is helping us to even, to even go back for like steps back to say, okay, where are these questions coming from and how can they, um, how can they be reoriented uh, to pay attention to even the way that our thinking has 
has been so limited. So I just wanted to mention that, name that, and thank you all for uh, taking our questions and then taking us further. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. And we have one question that will probably be the only one. And the question is, what are your practices of joy when doing this work? What are your practices of joy? I can start just to kind of open it up. But uh, I think that like every time I meet outside of the context of work or the academy or whatever it is, the fact that you're just getting together, no matter how big the group to like think of alternative ways to live in this world is is a is is a uh, is a victory and uh, you know the red nation started at a kitchen table like that's where it started and every organization starts you know at some point between two people just you know at, at the very bare minimum two people getting together saying that they want to um you know change the world and for me it's not I can't do anything other than this and it's not I don't even it's not like that I, um, I find quote-unquote happiness or joy in, in that sense but I can't do anything other than this this is the commitment that we that I made like these are the prayers that I put down there's no other option like my um, one of my uh, mentors Elizabeth Cooklin she's a Dakota elder said she told me once she said you don't even own your own life you're just here to ensure the coming of the next generation and you know, I don't know culturally how that sounds to like white people or whatever, but, but for me, that's a, a very powerful thing that I'm committed to. And, you know, being indigenous is, is not just about, um, you know, tragedy. Like we are uh, an affirmation of life. And I think that's where I, I find if, if something could be called joy, um, that's where I find, uh, I guess, my, my grounding. I'm, I'm remembering, um before the pandemic, and I think it was one of the last largest gathering that the Red Nation hosted. And it was um, an unThanksgiving dinner that was open to everyone. And the, the table was just covered with food. Just, and, and these Pueblo people were bringing like incredible, incredible red chili that you could just drown in. And, um, I forgot the name, the John Brown Club members were outside grilling chicken, like just hundreds of pieces of chicken. And the room was full of people. And there was one room where they people were invited to come and, and listen um, to, and it was, you know, revolutionary talk. And I'm sitting next to um, um, a, a white brother and sister, they were older. And it was in a in a building that had just been built. It was um, subsidized housing. And they were telling me this is like the safest building, the safest place that we've lived in a long, long time, you know. And then um, my work, um, because I wrote an essay uh, uh, criticizing, critiquing the Diné Marriage Act, which is essentially discriminatory against our um, LGBTQ relatives and the relationships. Um, that brought to me um, acknowledgement of my alliance and support for our non-binary um, relatives. They honored me with my very own drag show. And I took my mom with me and my mom is just sitting there screaming like, oh my God, you know, she's holding her mouth, her hand over her mouth. And the next day she says, my stomach's hurting because I was laughing so hard. Okay. And so those, when you talk about joy, I think it's in those moments of kinship making. 
Um, tomorrow, Friday evening, um, we're having another event hosted by the Red Nation with David Correa on his new book. And I'm really anticipating really a, a, a time of kinship and, and movement building, you know, and, and, and to me, that's what's mattered um, a lot. Yeah, Jennifer, um, I was going to say, for me, I find the joy in, in things like when we go to Gallup, which is a hard place to visit, but Jennifer promised me that we would have mutton ribs. And so that's where I will find my joy. Jennifer and I and, and Larry Casusa's siblings will share mutton ribs. And I'm, lo I'm looking forward to that at the flea market. Um, and you know, that, that, the work is the joy. I mean, that's, that's, that's what's, and the mutton ribs. <laughs> One last thing I do want to add to that is that the foreword um, to this book is Red Milla, Cody, and Brandon Benali. And Red Milla is Danan Nahitle. Nahitle is a word after consultation with medicine people that they came up with to talk about, to, to name our Black relatives. Because Nahitle, Red Milla is Dene, her mother's Dene, and her father is um, African American or Black. And so she tells us, and I agree with her, that the Navajo word for our Black relatives is racist and discriminatory. You know, and so this is the work that she's been putting forward and just putting out there our, our term for our, our um, Nakisa relatives. And she's like the most gracious, most beautiful person in the world. So if you go on YouTube and listen to her songs, that brings me joy too. I'll just say shortly, Joy, there's a lot of laughter and humor in the work. I feel like we live. I mean, you know, the world is very violent. I think we we document this quite extensively in the book, the level of violence and how much it saturates. And I think oftentimes um, we are really trapped in trapped in trauma. Um, and it's it's just important to 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 trust the vision of Indigenous people. I especially trust the vision and the prayers of Indigenous women. And in that trust, you find a great deal of peace and there's a great deal of joy because that vision is also funny. It, you know, it's trash talking. It's like, you know, it's just, it's the good things that happen when you come together for a meal and you form kin with people and just laugh and joke, laugh and joke. Like I can't, the Red Nation's pretty, we spend like half of our time just joking with each other. I'm just gonna be real with you. And it took us so long to write this book partly because when the four of us come together, we actually just kind of joke a lot about things before we are able to get serious and do the writing. And so just do, there's a lot of laughter and humor and I encourage everyone to always find the laughter and humor. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so grateful for that question because it's so important to end on the note of joy, joy and kinship and relationships that you all have so beautifully highlighted. All of this is such an important part of the work of resistance. So thank you. Thank you for sharing all of your, your practices of joy and all that you have shared with us. I am, my heart is full and uh, I know we are all full um, from this time. We are at the point of closing. Uh, sadly, the time has already passed us. I want to thank all of our panelists and particularly our students and our guests. Our guests, we are so deeply grateful for your work, for all that you have shared with us today. You have given us so much to process and consider for our own work of justice and healing that is rooted in the work of dismantling racism and oppression within ourselves and within this institution. 
I want to highlight what Melanie said about justice, that we can't understand what justice looks like until we are engaged in the struggle together and that we need to turn to each other and build movements together or we're going to die. And I hope that our work together as members of this HGS community is returning to each other to build a restorative anti-racist and anti-oppressive Harvard Divinity School will also be connected to the greater work beyond our institution to advance the work of Native liberation and anti-racism and oppression. We have so much work to do. So thank you all so very much for helping to strengthen our foundation for this work. As I said in the beginning, this work is animated by the Racial Justice and Healing Committee and the Standing Committee on Diversity um, and so many other parts of our community. I wanna just thank the members of those committees for their continued work. Also Dean Hempton for his ongoing support and for all the departments within our school that support this work from IT, the communications, to the Dean's office. This is a collaboration and I'm truly, truly grateful for HES community. If we have, if any of you within our community have any need, if you have any need to talk to someone to process what you've heard and to learn more about our work of advancing um, our vision of, of a restorative anti-racist, anti-oppressive HES, please feel free to reach out to us at, the, at our DAB office. And for those outside of the community, we encourage you to speak um, to others, to be in conversation, have conversation partners as you process what you've heard so that you can be equipped to act. We've heard a lot of powerful and impactful information and we want to close now intentionally in a way that helps us to begin to absorb and metabolize what we've heard. So Steph is going to lead us in a poem. If you'd like, I invite you to close your eyes and breathe as we ground ourselves in a poem. About Standing and Kinship by Kimberly Blazer, an indigenous activist, environmentalist, and poet. We all have the same little bones in our foot, 26 with funny names like Navicler. Together they build something strong. Our foot arch, a pyramid holding us up. The bones don't get casts when they break. We tape them, one flange to its neighbor for support. Other things like sorrow work that way too. Find healing in the leaning, the closeness. Our feet have one quarter of all the bones in our body. Maybe we should give more honor to feet and to all those tiny but blessed cogs in the world. Communities, the forgotten architecture of friendship. As we begin to close, we invite you to check in with yourself to see how you're feeling, to take a deep breath or stretch if you need to. And as we checked in, we invite you to check out in the chat with one or two words about how you're feeling. Thank you. Sponsors, HDS Office of Diversity, Inclusion and Belonging and the HDS Racial Justice and Healing Committee. Copyright 2022, the President and Fellows of Harvard College.